Well, good morning. Already a great morning, right? I feel like I, I don't even need to say much up here. Already so much has been said about the greatness of our Savior and what He does for sinners. Uh, if you're not yet a Christian, it should be an encouragement to you that there's grace for you uh, in, in Christ and that you can come to Him with all your filth and baggage and, and sin and lay it at His feet and He will pardon generously, abundantly um, to give you the salvation you, your soul needs as those up here have testified to that reality. You turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and as you're turning there, I want to get your imagination going, and I want you to imagine that Grace, or sorry, that Rancho Cucamonga, our city, is an unreached people group. Imagine that. That means that there are no churches here. Imagine that there's no Bibles here. No one has a copy of the Word of God. Imagine that no one has heard about Jesus. They've never heard the Gospel. No one has repented and believed. No one has gotten baptized. And it's just you. You and your family plopped down in an unbelieving community that have never heard any of the truth about salvation and how people are to attain salvation through Christ. What would you do if that were you? If you were put in that situation, what would you do? It might be a good conversation for you to have around the lunch table today or maybe over dinner tonight. It could lead to some fruitful discussion. What would you do if you were the only Christians here? I think if you're a follower of Christ, one of the biggest desires you'd have would be to help others come to know Christ. That's one of your greatest desires. You'd want other people to come to know Christ. And imagine, let's say you're in that situation and you start thinking, okay, i got to help people come to know the truth of salvation and I want to introduce them to the gospel message. And so you begin um, meeting people and sharing the gospel. And by the grace of God, let's say that some of these people actually repent. They, they entrust their souls to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's say they get baptized. And now the, the small group of you begin meeting as a church and as that is taken off and, and you're seeing the Lord do this amazing work right before your eyes as people are starting to come to the Lord, let's say it's just at that moment that you receive some bad news, that you have a terminal disease and you're not going to be able to make it any more than three years. Could you imagine? I mean, if you're in that situation and you've been pouring out your life with these people, trying to help them understand the gospel, and now you know that you're probably going to be departing in a short period of time, what would that change about the way that you were doing ministry? You would probably get a new sense of urgency, right? You'd be really strategizing, how do I make sure these people know what they need to know? How do they get what they need so that they can continue this work after I'm gone? All your knowledge of the truth, you would be trying to pour into them. All the wisdom that you've attained, you'd be trying to hand it off. All the experience that you've accumulated over your years of following Christ, you'd be doing everything in your power to make sure these people, you'd be like a mother eagle knowing that your baby birds have got to fly on their own at some point. They won't have you forever. And you'd be trying to teach them how to flap their wings and how to fly on their own. Well, as we come to Mark chapter 6, I believe this is kind of what Jesus is doing. Uh, Jesus doesn't have a terminal disease, but he does know that he doesn't have forever that he is going to die on that cross. That was part of his plan in coming to earth. That he is going to come, not to pastor a church forever uh, there in Jerusalem, 
That's not what he came to do. He came to live. He was only there for about three years. And then he died on that cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then left the building of his church and the advance of his mission up to 12 ordinary men. Jesus is going to establish his church through the apostles minus Judas. He's going to invest in them so that when he's departed, they will be equipped to handle the task of starting that church. So one of the things that you notice as you read through and you study through the Gospel of Mark, as we have over the last few months, you begin to see that this, yes, it is about Jesus' person and work. Yes, it is about Jesus' teachings, what he taught, not only his disciples, but also those who are in the crowds listening. Also, we encounter a lot about his methods. How did he do this? What was his plan to establish the church so that after he left, he would have these men trained up to lead without him? You're there in Mark chapter 6. And if you look at verse 7, it says, And he, of course, that's Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. This is the first time now in the text that Jesus is actually enlisting these men to go out and preach his message, the message that he has been giving them. And what we learn from this, or what we are reminded of again as we get to this section, is that Jesus all along up to this point has been training these men for this purpose of establishing his church. So what we're actually going to do here is we're actually only going to look at the one verse, verse 7, because we're going to go back and review and recap and try to paint the picture of Jesus' method of training the disciples how to lead uh, once he's gone. And the reason I want to do that is because the principles we see in the method of God equipping and training the disciples to lead the church is the same. These are the same principles that we want to use here at Grace Rancho as we think about ministry. How did Jesus uh, make sure that the gospel message would be perpetuated after he's gone? Well, what we learn from him is the same things that we want to be doing here. And as we look at these several key passages, there's one in chapter 1, there's one in chapter 3, and there's one here, we start putting together a portrait of Jesus' strategy to ensure that the gospel goes on after he departs. We're going to look at four pillars. Your note taker, here's your heading. Four pillars that undergirded or that supported Jesus' ministry. Four foundations or four priorities uh, that we see as we look at how did Jesus train the 12. We're going to start with this one. Number one, Jesus focused on people. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Jesus began his ministry with a focus on people. In chapter 1, verse 15, he begins preaching. Uh, we, we went over this last week a little bit, talking about the, the idea of repentance. And Jesus begins preaching. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then immediately following, you see in verse 16, he begins to call to himself some men that he is going to begin training. Look at verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 17, and he said to them, Follow me, 
and I will make you fishers of men. This is the first four, these are the first four men that get called to follow Jesus. And the intention that God has with these four men is that as they follow Jesus, they are going to be trained, equipped to become fishers of men. In other words, they're going to be the ones that are doing the ministry. Uh, you go to Mark chapter 3, turn over a page, and if you're in chapter 3, you look at verse 13. This is the more formal call of the 12 apostles. It says he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. These are the 12 and he appointed 12 whom he named apostles, it says there. This is what Jesus is doing to establish the church. He is going to choose men. He's going to call them out from the crowds and he's going to invest in them to train them so that they can be the ones that are doing the ministry after he's gone. People are going to be Jesus' strategy. I remember when I went to the, the Philippines in high school, and one of the, the first days that we were there, we got to listen to one of the, the missionaries give a lecture on kind of their philosophy of ministry and how are they going to reach the poor uh, people in these villages that uh, were around Manila. And he got up there in front of a whiteboard and, and he, he drew this uh, little church with a steeple and everything, cross on top, and he said, here's how some missionaries do their, uh, their work when they come into a new place. He, he says they start with a church building. They make it nice. They make it appealing. They make it attractive. They get the right music. They get the right children's ministries. And they make it just right so that all the people in the village will want to be a part of that church. They go around then. They start handing out flyers that we're going to have a church service. And here's what it features. Here's what we're going to be doing. Here's why you should attend. And he drew all these stick figures around and drew arrows of them all coming into this church building. And I'm sitting there as a junior in high school going, wow, that sounds like a great strategy. And then he goes, we, on the other hand, and he goes to the other part of the whiteboard, and he draws some stick figures around in kind of a circle, and he goes, we don't start with the church building. See, we start with people. We go from house to house. We share the gospel with people, and we see who's spiritually responsive. Uh, when someone indicates any kind of spiritual response, then we follow up with them. And we'll go and see who's interested in reading the Bible or starting a Bible study. And then from those people, we start gathering them just to study the Bible. And by the grace of God, we've seen many people in those little Bible studies repent and be saved. And now they, they have a hunger to follow Jesus. And then we start a church. And typically it's in a home or it's in some place we can all gather. And maybe, just maybe, if necessary, we'll build a building. I never forgot that. That the, uh, sometimes the way we think about how ministry is done is we start with the program, we start with the building, we start with the structure. We think that if we get all those things in place, then certainly we could draw a crowd. And Jesus, as we observe what he did, he just picked some guys and started investing in them. He just started pouring his life out into them. He started teaching them and living life with them. I think this guy who gave this philosophy of ministry that people are before program was absolutely on to something. Jesus didn't come, build a building, start recruiting volunteers, set up a smashing Sunday service, and invite everyone to show up. No, he started with a few men, and then he went deep with them. He went deep with them. There's a classic book by Robert Coleman. I'd recommend it to you called the master's plan for evangelism where he just goes through and shows how did jesus establish these men what was his method of getting the early church off to a start 
he starts by writing this. He says, it all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction his evangelistic strategy would take. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men even before he ever organized an evangelistic campaign or even preached a sermon in public. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. You see, Jesus' method to win the community, Jesus' method to make sure the gospel is being preached, the gospel is being spread, was to start narrowly with some people that he could pour into. He focused on people. He invested in people. He trained them up so that they would be the ones then going and doing the ministry after his departure. I want to point out something to you, but it might be unique about our church. Grace Rancho, you might see as you look in that bulletin that there's not a whole long list of programs you can sign up for. A whole long list of events that are coming up on the calendar. And you might think that that's um, bad strategy or we're badly organized. Uh, We would prefer to say that it's a strategy to make sure that we are prioritizing people, relationships. Over-programming in a church can be a great place to keep busy and a terrible place to build relationships. If you're so busy going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing that you don't have any time to actually get to know one another. Margin matters in ministry. If you want to have a fruitful ministry, you've got to have time carved out in your lives to take people to lunch or to invite people over to your home to provide care for them. And when you focus so much on events and programs and systems, Sometimes people can fall to the wayside and not be prioritized. But here, what we want to do is follow Jesus' example is in, by, by investing in people, prioritizing relationships. I want to ask you something. I always find December to be one of those times of the year that it's good to reflect and give a little bit of time to evaluate your life, how, how you're doing, and maybe think about what you might want to do differently in the new year. Let me ask you this. As we kind of close out the year, here's a practical question. Are there people here who are better off spiritually as a result of your presence? Are you moving toward other people in love to help them know and follow Jesus Christ? Do you ever take initiative to start a relationship with someone that you don't know very well for the purpose of doing them spiritual good. I think if we want to follow our Savior, we will care about doing those types of things. I understand everyone's geared differently. Uh, Some people are like giddy greyhounds when they get around people and they're so excited and they just want to spend time with people as much as they can. And some people... Yes, I'm thinking of specific people here in this congregation. Some of us are terrified of the thought of walking across the room and initiating a conversation with someone you don't know very well. Let me tell you, don't compare yourself with one another. Before the Lord, do your best to spend what God has given you in your wallet for Him. Move across the room. Take baby steps. But do it for the glory of 
God and for the advance of His purposes. I want to encourage you, church. I think you're doing a great job. I want to encourage you for all the times I see you doing those very things, inviting people into your home, taking people out to lunch, setting up an early morning breakfast. Why? So you can actually get to know people. And so you can actually care for them. So you can invest in them to help them follow Jesus. I'm so thankful for the people who have done that with me and asked me questions that have caused me to reflect on my own life in areas I need to grow. Jesus invested in people. From the very beginning of his ministry, he said, I want you to follow me. I want to be in your life, and I want to open up my life. Let's look at a second principle that Jesus used as he uh, began to train these people. Secondly, Jesus engaged these men in an immersive experience. Jesus engaged these men in an immersive experience. Let's go back again to Mark 1 and look at that phrase or that little call that Jesus gave to the disciples. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The way Jesus is going to make these men into ministers, into preachers, is by having them follow him. And that's not metaphorical. You read through Mark, and they are literally following him around as he goes around and ministers to the crowds and to the Pharisees. They see him interact with the Pharisees and even see him interact with his own family. You go to chapter 3 again. Let's look at this, verse 14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Why? Watch this. So that they might be with him. Like they're appointed just to be with him. They might be saying, all right, Jesus, what are you going to have us do? And Jesus' first thing is, just just be with me. Just follow me around. And then he says, yeah, I'm going to send you out to preach. But part of the training, as we're seeing here, for them to preach is that they first just spend a lot of time with Jesus. He didn't say, sign up for my webinar, disciples. In 12 weeks, I'll have you preaching the gospel. Jesus didn't say, take my online course. He He didn't say, show up to my classroom and I'm going to lecture you. He said, follow me, be with me, watch me. It is a multi-sensory experience that Jesus wants to give these 12 men. Let's look, at the, look at the text. Okay, let's see what's happening. Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. We'll read them all, but we'll just show some of the things that these disciples got to see. They got to see Jesus deal with his very own family, calling them crazy in verse 21. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. What do the disciples get to see there? They get to see him preaching to the crowds and, and talking even to them about the nature of the kingdom of God and the nature of uh, how the seed is sown and who receives it and why. Look at verse 10. I love verse 10. He has just preached this parable. And then verse 10 says, And when he was alone, those around him and with the twelve asked him about the parables. I love that. It's like there's been this public ministry going on, but then there's this private ministry where the disciples, I can almost envision them by themselves, they're back in a room, and these people are kind of all huddling around Jesus, and they're asking, well, what did this mean? And could you go more into depth on this? And could you explain this a little more? And Jesus is trying to help them understand the nature of the parables. Uh, that, That is is where you want to be when you're talking about an immersive discipleship kind of relationship. There's always the meeting after the meeting. That's the place you want to be. It's, it's the people hanging out and talking through how these things apply to their life and they're asking follow-up questions to see what was meant by that. These disciples get to be there. It's a sweet moment of fellowship and Jesus is allowing them to participate in this because it's all part of him training them. 
they watched him work in power. Right after that section of the parables, they get to go on the boat with him and they see him calm the sea. They get out of the boat with him on the other side and they see him cast the thousands of demons out of the demoniac. They're, they're watching all of this. They're seeing it. Then they cross through the crowds again and they see this woman who's been diseased and Jesus heals her. And then they see this woman or this man who has this daughter who's about to die and they get to see that Jesus raises her from the dead. Peter, James, and John get this particular privilege of actually going into the room and watching it happen with their own eyes. The rest get to know that it happens and be close by Jesus as it does. And then you come up to our chapter 6 here. And they've just gone to Nazareth. They've been rejected there. And it says in verse 7 that now he's calling the 12 and he's sending them out two by two. In other words, part of their ministry training regimen is that now they're going to be the ones going to do it. They're preaching. And look at verse 30, if you skip ahead a little bit. Chapter 6, verse 30. You get this little uh, section about John the Baptist. And they come back after they've gone on this little missionary preaching tour. In verse 30, it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus, verse 31, he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. So Jesus says, All right, it's time for a retreat. We're going to get away. You just had this missionary tour. You probably had all these experiences. Now we're going to go away. We're going to talk about it. We're going to discuss some of these things. We're going to debrief on, on what happened. We want to, uh, Jesus wanted to give some extra special time with these guys. He was training them by immersing them in truth, immersing them in ministry, helping them see how he lived, watching his life as he interacted with the various kinds of people. Jesus is training the leadership of the church by immersing them into a learning environment where they listen, where they watch, where they do, where they debrief, all of these things. Did you know that the way disciples are made today is the same? That if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and be a growing disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to be in the same environment that these apostles were in where you are listening to him teach you are watching the lives of godly people as they follow jesus you're serving you're actually doing the work of the ministry just as the apostles were and you're talking about it with other people who are giving you feedback and helping you think clearly about these things and helping you uh, shape your theology according to the word of god you, you know that's that's still today how disciples are trained except it doesn't happen with the single guru or the single one leader, you know what happens today in the church? The body of Christ? As we immerse ourselves in the relationships that God has given us here, we listen to His Word, we watch the lives of godly people around us, we listen to them speak directly into our lives, we talk with them what it, about what it is to serve Jesus, this is all part of the environment we need to grow. There is kind of an unfortunate idea that sometimes takes root in a church. And the idea is that if you really are growing and you really want to be trained 
to serve the Lord. You can't look in the church. You've got to go elsewhere. There's sometimes a mindset that the church really isn't able to do this. You've got to go elsewhere. I was reading recently a, a, a book by a guy named J.T. English, and he's telling his own story, and he goes, I was on fire for the Lord. I just got converted, and, and I was just reading the Bible as much as I could, and I was taking every theology book I could find, and anything anyone gave me, I was just devouring it. And he was about to get married, so he and his fiance were going through some premarital counseling, and as they're talking, the, the counselor asks him, you know, what do you think you want to do after you graduate from college? And so he responds, well, I don't know for sure, but one thing I do know is the most important thing for me right now is growing in my relationship with Christ. The pastor kind of looked a little surprised. He goes, oh, you, you really want to grow? And he goes, yeah. He goes, oh, well, you got to go to seminary for that. That's tragic, church. That's tragic that that would be a mindset, that the church is inept, the bride of Christ is inept, inadequate, to equip the people of God for the work of God. Now, I'm a, I love seminary. I'm pro-seminary, been to seminary. I'm thankful for what the seminary taught me. But we also have to be uh, believers, big believers, in the, the way that God has organized the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The church is the place where we immerse ourselves into relationships, where we are listening, learning, doing, and debriefing all for the sake of the gospel. And as we do that, it becomes this kind of ecosystem in which we can grow. This, by the way, is why we uh, make a big deal out of membership. We, we want Christians to make commitments to a body of believers and when you become a member, here's what it's like. It's like you're immersing yourself into a web of caring relationships that have committed to help you grow. That's the kind of ecosystem you want to be a part of, where people love you enough to be a part of your spiritual life, to encourage you and to teach you and to challenge you and to correct you. We all need these things. Jesus gave these to the disciples because that's what it would take to raise them up to be leaders in the church. And that's what the church is to be. Read through the, the New Testament epistles and what a church ought to be, and you'll see that this is the way that God has designed it. If you want to grow, and you feel that you're not growing, you're stagnant, and, and you're not sure what it is, my counsel to you would be, have you really pursued others in the church? Have you really immersed yourself into the life of the body? Have you really opened your life up to other mature believers who could speak into your life? Are you really listening to others' wise counsel as they give direction for what Christianity should look like in your life? Parents, if you want to help your kids hear and believe and respond to the gospel, give them the gift of a church family who will know them who will seek them out, who will demonstrate care and interest, who will love them, who will disciple them. This is what Jesus did to train his disciples. He immersed them into this training, learning experience. Here's a third principle for Jesus' ministry. I want to show you how Jesus did this or what he was aiming at. Third, Jesus multiplied the ministry. Let's look at Mark 6 again. 
look at the end of verse 6. The beginning of verse 6 is at the end of the part where he's in Nazareth. He gets rejected. It says he marveled because of their unbelief. But then he says, he went, he went among, about among the villages teaching. Okay? Did you notice something about who's doing the teaching? Who's doing the teaching there? You see that? He did it. And then you get to verse 7. He called the 12, and he began to send them out two by two. And what are they doing? You see in verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You have between verse 6 and verse 7, multiplication. You have one man preaching, one man healing in verse 6. And in verse 7, you have 12 men going out in pairs, teaching and preaching and proclaiming the gospel of repentance. Multiplication. This heralds back to what Jesus said in chapter 1 when he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. In other words, he said, if you follow me, you're not merely going to be watching ministry, you're going to be doing ministry. This is what Jesus intended to do, was to train them up to multiply the ministry so it's not just him doing it, that there's a multitude of people that are raised up for doing it. And when you start to read through the rest of the New Testament about the design of the church, you see that this is how the church is to operate. 2 Timothy 2.2 is one of my favorites uh, that has shaped the way uh, I think about ministry, that many of us think about ministry here at Grace Rancho, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, you got the Apostle Paul talking to Timothy, who's a pastor of a church in Ephesus, and listen to what he says. He says, And what you, Timothy, have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see that? You see how many links in the chain there are? Paul has invested in Timothy. Timothy is to find faithful men And what are the faithful men supposed to do? They're supposed to find others who they can teach also. In other words, the nature of church ministry from Paul giving to Timothy is, hey, Timothy, get other people doing the ministry. Don't be just yourself. Help others learn what it means to do ministry. Get them doing it so that you can reach others also. Ephesians chapter 4. If you've been in our membership class, you've heard this one, and hopefully by now you realize how important this verse, these these texts are are to the way we think about ministry in our church. Because you go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he, this is Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Listen to what he did. It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He gave all these leaders in the church. What did he give them for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Why do leaders exist in the church? To help the believers in the church, to do the ministry of the church. Never is it to be that the leaders or the upfront guys or the louder ones are supposed to be the ones that are doing all the ministry. The ministry is to be done by the church body, and the leaders are to be the ones that are equipping the church to do the work of the ministry themselves. There's no bench warmers then in the church of Jesus Christ. All of us, if we're called to follow him, in following him, Jesus says he's going to make us into fishers of men, and so we're called to ministry. I was reading a book by a guy named Mark Clifton, uh, who's done church revitalizations, coming into churches where the church is dying, and he has helped uh, 
get them on a, a path to be restored. And in his book, he speaks of six replanting imperatives, six uh, what he would call non-negotiable priorities for helping a dying church return to faithful vitality. And here's one of the things he writes. He says, one trait that you will find in many declining churches is a failure to pass leadership on to the next generation. The desperate need of young leaders in a replanting situation is one of the reasons I believe you have to focus on reaching young men. I have never heard a dying church say, we just have too many young men and we need to go out and attract some old people. Although you might be surprised at how much I've thought that. We need some more old people around here. He goes on, he says, I have also never seen a healthy church that's without a solid core of young men. He's pointing out something that I think we all need to notice here is that if we're not, the obvious reality is that anyone in leadership is going to die. Let's be honest, everyone's going to die. Every single leadership position is, in a sense, interim, right? We're, we're, We're not ever going to last forever. No one is. And so if there is not anyone replacing those who are in current leadership, eventually what's going to happen? The leaders all die off. And this guy is making the point that one of the most important features, if you want to help a church be restored to health, you have to be investing in new leaders. In other words, you've got to be multiplying the ministry just as Jesus did. This means that elders and pastors and planters and missionaries need to be looked at from within the congregation to be taught and to be helped and to be trained and to be equipped so that the elders, when they are done with their work or when they're sent out, there's more to come in and replace them. This also means that our women are invested in training the other young women. Titus chapter 2, verse 4, says it like this. Train, the older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Men, in other words, equipping men. Women, equipping women. And as the church does this, raising up leaders in those categories that can shepherd the church, care for the church, the way God designed. Jesus intends that the church is always seeking to lift up others who can take the mantle of leadership to multiply ministry so that it's not just one person doing it. It's not just a small group of elite, super spiritual people doing it. Every Christian filled with the Spirit, building up the body of Christ. What if your goal in 2021 was to pick a brother or sister in the church and to make it your mission for that year to help them grow like they never have grown before. To help them in their walk with the Lord and also to help them then be pouring out their lives for others. You see, we all ought to be looking to multiply ourselves in the lives of other people. That's what Jesus did. Here's our last principle that we see as Jesus trained up the 12 to do the work of the ministry after his departure. Jesus was training them to send them. Jesus was training them to send them. You go back and see in Mark 1, what was he doing? He's going to make them fishers of men. In Mark 3, it says he's going to train them. He's going to want them to be with them. Why? So he can send them out to preach. 
In Mark 6, we've just read, he starts sending them out two by two. Why? So they can get practice preaching, so they can do the work of the ministry, so that uh, come the time of Jesus' departure, they will be set loose upon the world to preach the gospel. You read Matthew 28, the end of the story, the Great Commission, and the apostles are sent out to make disciples of all nations. You read the book of Acts, these apostles minus Judas are sent out to plant churches to preach the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, all of what Jesus was doing had an aim to send them out, to catapult them out into the world for ministry. Now, this is what happens when you encounter Jesus. When you truly encounter him, you have this desire to make sure others know who he is and what he's done. It's been said like that, I like this, this little saying that, not original with me, that Jesus is like a spiritual cyclone. The way you know he's pulling you in is that you feel yourself being hurled back out. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're encountering these amazing truths about the gospel. You encountered your own sin, and you go, this is awful how horrible my sin is and how great it is in offense to God. But then at the same time, you realize that this Christ who lived the perfect life and went to the cross to die on behalf of his people for their sins. He rose from the dead. Why? So he can pardon and justify everyone who comes to him. And that truth is taking root in your mind and in your heart, and it's exploding with relevance for the way that you live. And you're starting to go, why didn't anybody tell me this before? And they might have. You just weren't listening. And now you're, you're so amazed at this Christ who is your Savior and your Lord and you want to live for Him. You want to make sure others hear this glorious gospel. And so you're telling people at your work. You're telling people in your family. This is happening. You're, you want people to know. Do you, do you have any idea how great this Christ is? And the way that you know that you're getting nearer to Christ is that you feel yourself being compelled out to make sure others know about this Christ. And this is what happened with Jesus. Jesus is taking these men through these encounters, through these lessons. He's helping them understand who he is in his authority and in his power and his compassion. And as they are drawing nearer and nearer, they're understanding him more and more. It will be made more clear post-resurrection at the coming of the Spirit. But at that time when their understanding opens up, they can't help but stand in front of a crowd of 3,000 people as Peter does in Acts and preach the gospel and watch people be saved. This is my personal experience. It was my college pastor. It was books he was giving me to read. It was discussing what the church should be. It was coming face to face with my own sin and, and experiencing the power of the forgiveness offered in Christ because of the gospel. It was the taste of doing ministry, all of this happening in my early 20s. And suddenly I began thinking, why would I give my life to do anything but this? Because what happens when we draw nearer to Jesus is we get sent out by Jesus. What does this mean for us? Is that we want to be ascending church. That we want to be ever proclaiming the greatness of Jesus Christ, his power, his authority, his compassion, to hold him up high and to let him transform the hearts and lives of our people. And as they do, then we invest in them, we care for them, we equip them and send them out, whether that's sending them just right back into the church family to be building it up or whether it's sending them across the globe to bring the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet, 
or making them part of a, a team or a core team that gets sent to revitalize a church or plan a church. When we come to Christ, we lay down our lives and we say, here I am, send me. I will go wherever you need me, Jesus, for the advance of your glorious gospel. So let's put this in context and wrap it up. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, anticipating his death, resurrection, and ascension, began training 12 men to carry the torch after his departure. Those men lived and died preaching the gospel, and by the power of Christ's word, they laid the foundation of the church. They died, and other men and women arose, and they protected the gospel, and they preserved it for another generation, and that generation died, and there arose another generation brought up by Jesus Christ to, again, protect the gospel and perpetuate it down through the ages and to spread it to every corner of the globe. And for 2,000 years, the church has marched onward, and it hasn't been smooth, and much blood has been spilled. And many errors have plagued the church, and many scandals have blemished her, and many obstacles have hindered her. But on she goes, sometimes limping, but she has that baton of the truth. She is the precious bride of Christ, not always beautiful, but ever beloved. And we gather this morning because we've received that baton of the gospel. And many faithful churches are gathering this morning because they have a message to proclaim, this beautiful gospel. And we come because we know that Christ is glorious and he's worth it to have his message proclaimed. And we understand that there are four billion, probably much more than that, that have no saving relationship with Jesus Christ and are lost if they don't hear the gospel. Our community is filled with several people, hundreds, thousands of people that have no Christ and no salvation. So what do we do? What do we do? We must, like Jesus, invest in people. We must all together commit to disciple one another in an immersive experience where we bring the truth to bear in the relationships God has given us. We multiply the number of those who are in active service, calling people, all hands on deck, all gifts are needed for this mission, and we send them back into the world for the work of Christ and the advance of the gospel. We're learning from Jesus what his methods were. These are our methods, and by the grace of God, we will continue preaching the gospel as long as the Lord gives us the ability for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, it is a privilege to just marvel at your life. You're perfect in wisdom. Perfect in the way you enacted your your wisdom in the lives of these people. Everything you did, every word you said, every action you took to train these men was guided by perfect love, perfect wisdom, 
Lord, you were never lazy, but always zealous. You weren't a sluggard. You were eager in this. And Lord, we study you and we know that this is the model. That if we want to be faithful disciple makers, we must be like you. And so, Lord, we pray that where there is fear, there would be grace to help us overcome it. Where there is folly, that you would grant us wisdom to walk in obedience. Where there's confusion, Lord, we pray that you'd grant clarity. And Father, we do pray that where there's people who are not sure what they ought to do next, pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom to take that first step, even if that first step is asking someone for help. Lord, we want to be a faithful church. So help us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.